0: Recognize these are my children, and, uh, and so it's a privilege that we'll hear from them this morning uh, as God continues to prepare them for what's ahead, and rather than me fill you in, Rachel.
1: Uh, which is an organization with the sole focus of taking the gospel to the unreached people groups in the world. Um, so that's taken us uh, to Michigan and to Missouri for different stages of training. Uh, we're really excited this past November, so about a year, uh, a year ago, we completed our training. Uh, finally, we're, we're ready to start preparing for the transition to the field. Uh, and then this next month, November 15th, we'll get on an airplane, move to Indonesia uh, to begin ministry with new tribes.
2: unreached people groups, and that means they're totally isolated from the gospel. There's no, uh, there are no believers who speak their language, and there's no portion of scripture translated into their language. These, um, the region of Papua, these, these tribal groups in Papua are largely animistic, and animism is the belief in different spirits that inhabit um, living and non-living things, and animism really is characterized by fear. These people live in constant fear, trying to manipulate the spirits to, to bring them health, to protect their children, to help their crops grow. And so as we once we move into the tribal area, we'll uh, learn the tribal language and culture. The language will be an unwritten language, so we'll put this language into writing, teach them to read and write their language, and translate scripture into their language. Now, our desire is that these people will trade their animistic worldview for a biblical worldview. And anthropologists agree that um, worldview is developed almost always through storying. And to give you an example of that that we see every day, uh, postmodern Westerners build their worldview largely upon the story of naturalistic evolution. And so to, in order to see true worldview change um, in, in this tribal group, we will present the gospel in the context of the biblical narrative. We'll start at the very beginning. There's one God. He created everything. We'll talk about, about the Garden of Eden and the fall and the consequences, the effects that the fall have on our current situation. We'll walk through Scripture, through the Old Testament, bringing out some of the major themes that God presents there. We see through, uh, through God's interactions with the Israelites and, and his interactions with his people that he's holy and that man is sinful Desperately sinful, we see that God is just, and He He requires judgment for sin, requires payment for sin. We we see that uh, sin is so terrible that life must be given, blood must be shed in payment for sin. We also see that God is merciful. We see that He always provides a substitute. He always provides a way out um, with. With Abraham and Isaac, he, he told him to sacrifice Isaac, but he provided, provided a ram. And with the, with the Israelites, he, he allowed for them to sacrifice a lamb as a substitute for their sins. And, and so we, we will walk through Scripture bringing out these major themes, um, teaching them who God is. And some of these themes, they, they may have no understanding of. For example, if they have no idea of the concept of mercy, um, we, we could say, God is merciful, and this is what that means. Or we could just show them through the story, through God's interaction with his people, that he is merciful. And so, and so we'll do that walking through scripture, laying the foundation before we ever get to the gospel. Once we get to the New Testament, the foundation has been laid. And usually by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, the people are putting the pieces together. For example, when John says, behold the Lamb of God, light bulbs are going off. People know what God provides lambs for. And often, before the missionaries can even explain the significance of the cross, the people get it. On a worldview level, they understand that God provided a lamb to pay for their sin. And so, once we we do have believers, um, we will will continue teaching and discipling as they take baby steps and begin to walk and function on their own Our goal from the beginning is to work ourselves out of a job. So with every task we undertake, uh, we'll be working toward handing off that task to the indigenous believers there. Whether that's teaching literacy or teaching and discipling and taking the gospel to the surrounding villages, we'll we'll be working toward letting them take ownership of that. Um, Yeah, every one of these steps is obviously monumental we've we've had a lot of training four and a half years of training for this specific task but to think that fallible humans could do any of this and do it well by their own devices would be ridiculous so we know that if god isn't the one doing the work this this will all be for naught and so and part of the reason we want to share all of this with you is to ask you, Willow to pray for us. Please pray for us. Pray that God would um, be preparing the hearts of the tribal people that we're going to. Pray that Jim and I would work and serve humbly and faithfully and diligently throughout all of this. And pray for our children as they as we go on this adventure together. Pray that we would parent them well. And, um, and just this whole process, please, please be praying for us. That is the, the number one thing that that we
0: ask from you. Could we pray together right now? Our Father, we, um, what Rachel said about going to a people, an indigenous people that live in an incredibly fear-based worldview and culture. And we have confidence in your word. In, uh, when Paul wrote to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.7, he said, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound understanding and sound, a sound mind. And uh, Father, I uh, had the privilege of watching Jim and Rachel come to a deep understanding of the gospel, your message. The message of hope, the message of love, the message of wholeness and, and, uh, and forgiveness and grace. And uh, Father, you've given them a love for the nations. You've given them a heart um, that's willing to engage for however long it takes for uh, the work that you want to do and that you want to do through them to, uh, to be done. And so we're asking that you fill them with power. Uh, you anoint their lives in such a way that, uh, that they live out every day and daily the adventure of seeing your hand on them and working around them and through them. And uh, so that they're just going to be willing in every way to engage in what they see you already doing by your strength and by your power. And Father, we, uh, we commit as a church family... Um, as we dedicate them to you, we dedicate ourselves, Father, to the task of lifting them up and praying for for Jim, for Rachel, for Hudson, and for Noah, wherever you take them and however you choose to use them. Father, we faithfully will pray and support. And now, Father, as uh, as Jim shares the message with us, would you anoint him with your spirit? God, would you pour out your Spirit in such a way that every one of us will be touched by you and that you would teach us using um, the thoughts and preparations of Jim's heart um, to guide us to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.
1: You guys are looking at me like, man, that's a ticking time bomb up there, right? He's falling asleep. I was actually, I was counting on having an awake baby. At least that's how we practiced it. He's not pulling, you know, uh, he's not pulling his part. Um, This passage that we're going to look at in in the series in Mark uh, is probably a familiar one. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. It's this classic passage about the children. Um, I thought that I would actually start us off this morning uh, because for me, just, you know, normally my tendency is to look at a passage like this that I've read plenty of times that seems pretty basic on the surface. I look at it, I read it, and then I say, man, that's, that's nice. Yeah, the children, Jesus loves the children. All the children of the world. I know it's true because there's a song about it. And then I move on and I go over to other other texts. Maybe I look a little closer at some of the other uh, places and less closely at this one. But I just wanted to start us off this morning by kind of giving a visual, an illustration that's going to help us to get to the the main point, or at least one of the points that I want to make. Okay, and I'm going to do that by some compare and contrast. Okay, so can we get the first picture up there? Okay, now who knows what this is? Anyway, I just want to see who the nerds are, okay? No, this is an Australian brush turkey, okay? You didn't know that? Now, I actually, I discovered this because uh, this particular species is a member of a, the family uh, called megapodes, uh, which are indigenous to Indonesia and New Guinea and Australia. Uh, they're, they're in the region where we're going to be going, and I, I discovered them, and I thought, man, that's really fascinating, Okay, now what's fascinating about megapodes is that scientists call them precocial or super precocial, really, for these guys. Now, we we have the word precocious, right? That's like a a child who acts older than uh, she really is, you know, somebody that's a little bit more mature or something like that. So this is the idea. There's a spectrum here uh, in terms of how prepared from birth are animals you know, to go out and to live on their own. That's kind of the idea. Now, normally we think of birds in, in the next sense. Let me get that next picture. All right, this is what we think of usually, right? They, they're blind and bald. Uh, they can't do anything. And they, you know, mom and dad have to chew their food for them and like swallow it and then bring it back out. We all know how that works. Like, so this is what we expect. But if we go back to the other, the other picture, the Australian brush turkey, this guy's like two days old. Okay, so what happens is the, the, the mom uh, buries the egg in a mound. They're, kind of, they're called mound builders. And then when the chick hatches, it has to break out of its shell, dig its way to the surface of the mound, and then he comes out and he just starts grazing around and eating. But maybe what's even like more surprising is that these guys are known to fly on day one. That blows my mind. They're born with full flight feathers. They can fly on day one. Like, I mean, these are the extreme end of that spectrum. Super precocial. Okay, now the reason that I, that I bring that up is, is just to say, we know that God is capable of creating a baby that is not totally dependent on mom and dad when it's born. Right? Because I mean, we can see that. We know that it's possible that God can make a baby that can be born and just walk away, start feeding himself, start doing all that. And yet, I mean, you see what I'm holding here. All right, Noah is seven months old. Uh, he, he's crawling. He's pulling himself up on stuff and then falling down and getting hurt. Um, I, I, I just, I want to ask this question, like, what does Noah really contribute okay? Because it's not really anything. I mean, he's cute, okay? Like, I, he, he's, he's cute, but in terms of like, what does he bring to the table? It's nothing. He doesn't do chores. He can't feed himself. The whole diaper thing, I'm just gonna not even go there. Uh, he doesn't have a job, okay? Some of you uh, parents with adult children are thinking, you know, what, what's new there? Okay, but, but the point that I want to make is that God very deliberately and very specifically has given us human babies that are helpless, that are dependent, that do not bring anything to the table. And that doesn't change a single thing in terms of what we value them, how much we love them. I, every one of you know that I can very honestly say there's not a thing I wouldn't do for this guy. There's, there's not a thing I wouldn't give him if I knew that he needed it. I love him so much, and it has nothing at all to do with what he can or can't do. It's a separate thing. It has everything to do with who, whose is he? He's my son, right? His blood is, I mean, it, it's my blood in his veins. Okay, he has my image, and and if I put a picture of myself at his age, it would be pretty uncanny. Okay, but. I love him, and I value him because he's mine, because he's my son. Okay, I'm going to pass him off here. He's also heavy. Okay. Okay, so let's get into Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open Mark chapter 10. I also have the text on the screen for us. We're going to start in verse 13. Go to verse 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, on the surface, this seems like a pretty straightforward sermon right? Jesus loves the children. We've already said that. Um, but there, there's some pretty complex threads if we get a little bit under, under the surface. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, to getting into these this morning. Now, at first glance, I would say the, the most prominent question that arises uh, it has to do with the last statement that Jesus made. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Okay, it appears that he is saying there's a quality possessed by a child which if not possessed by the rest of us, will actually prevent us from receiving the kingdom of God. So, I mean, what's the quality, right? I mean, that's what we want to look at. What is the characteristic that a child has? If Jesus can say, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, then we want to know what he means by that. Okay, we're talking about some profound gospel implications. That's the first thread. Now, the second thread that we're going to look at is probably... Uh, more important in terms of the actual interaction that we're reading, but it's a lot more subtle. It's one that we pass over a lot. You see, the reason the whole interaction uh, with, with the, the disciples and Jesus talking to them comes about is because these disciples have taken upon themselves to act as gatekeepers in terms of who gets access to Jesus. They're sending away the parents with children. They're rebuking them. You could say that they were curating access to Jesus Okay, now we're used to seeing that word curate used in the verb sense, meaning uh, to oversee a museum or an art exhibit, right? Okay, but the noun form curate is derived from the Latin vicarious, and it refers to a subordinate acting in the role and with the authority of his superior. Okay, what we are reading is an account of the disciples making decisions about who got access to Jesus, and then Jesus correcting them sternly rebuking them, making sure that they changed their priorities to match his plan and his ministry. Okay, we tend to zone in on the children here, and and that's an important aspect of it, on, on what this means, what God is saying about the children in the text, but uh, we kind of miss the deeper interaction, the the fact that all of these statements are directed not at the children, but at the gatekeepers, at the disciples. All right, we're going to look at the context uh, um, a, a little bit kind of surrounding uh, our passage, we have some bookends both before this passage and after this passage that are going to help uh, clarify a little bit um, i 'll just go ahead and point out um, that our passage mark ten thirteen through sixteen um, is 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 presented right before Mark tells the story of the rich young ruler okay and it 's the same way in all three of the synoptic gospels mark uh, matthew, and luke uh, it 's always together with your, the Rich Young Ruler passage, and it's always in the same order. And, and I think that's telling. I think that's going to tell us something. Um, it's common for the gospel writers to, to compose their accounts in a way that's more appropriate for their particular audience. You know, each of those gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written to slightly different audiences, so you see some difference in the composition. Uh, but in, in this case, all three of them have the same combination in the same order. Um, Now, I think we can make the same observation or a similar observation on the front end. Okay, preceding our passage, Mark and Matthew both have the interaction with the Pharisees about divorce. That's what the sermon was about last week. And then Luke precedes this passage with a parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. So we're we're gonna just note that as we go. But here's the basic rundown. Okay, last week we saw... Uh, that Jesus has arrived in the the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Um, He's out there, the crowd is gathered, some Pharisees come up, they want to ask Jesus a question, they want to test him, Uh, they want to discredit him with a question about divorce, and Jesus responds and he gives some teaching about divorce, and that's what we talked about last week. And then we see uh, the group um, with Jesus and the disciples and whoever was with them uh, kind of retiring to a house. Uh, They were withdrawing a little bit, Um, but Mark says, and they were bringing children to him. Now, Mark says that it was so Jesus could touch them and lay hands on them to bless them, so he could confer a blessing on them. Uh, Matthew words it just a little bit differently. He says, so he could lay his hands on them and pray. And then Luke uh, makes a pretty helpful distinction. He says, they were bringing infants to him. He's he's the only one that kind of makes that distinction, but... um, it, it makes me think that probably the majority of who they were bringing were about Noah's age. You know, they, they, were, they were somewhere along those lines. Alfred Plummer uh, wrote in his commentary on Luke that on the first anniversary of their birth, Jewish children were sometimes brought to the rabbi to be blessed. All right, so this kind of makes sense. Probably not the first time they've seen this. They, they show up in a village... or or in a town or wherever, and the people in the town say, hey, there's a rabbi in town. Let's get the kids. Let's go get a blessing. Uh, This is probably a pretty normal uh, occurrence. And so I don't know exactly what this scene looked like. Okay, maybe there's a line out the door. Who knows? Maybe they're looking and and, and saying, man, this is like Santa Claus on Christmas Eve at the mall. And there's no end in sight. And they're thinking, man, we've had a long day. It's getting late. We're all tired from traveling. Maybe they're saying to themselves, you know, we just don't have time for this. Jesus is already predicting his own death at this point, and that is super confusing. And we don't know what he's saying. We need to hear more from him about that. Maybe they're thinking about how they're already headed toward Jerusalem, and that's right into the teeth of the opposition, And they're thinking, time is short. Um, Maybe we should help weed out some of the time wasters. Maybe we should prioritize and say, you know what? Uh, There's more important things to do. Um, It's not a far-fetched idea, right? To prioritize is is pretty basic. Uh, It's a human instinct. Um, It's important. uh, I mean, we recognize it as important to getting things done, to prioritize, to get the, the important things done first. Okay, and so I'd say the problem probably wasn't the intent, but it was the execution, right? They were making the wrong judgments. Now, we can kind of look back a little bit and see some examples uh, that that kind of further this idea. Do you remember in Mark chapter 9, when the disciples tried to stop a man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name? And they said, well, he wasn't following us. We tried to stop him. And, And Jesus said, the one who is not against us is for us. Do not hinder him because if he's not against us, he's for us. Okay, but if we go forward just a little bit, Mark chapter 10, verses two. So this is, you know, last week, we see the Pharisees come up to ask Jesus a question. And it's kind of like, okay, these guys are, are there solely to test him, to discredit him, you know? And, and so some ways you just want to ask, man, if the one who's not against us is for us, then is the one who's against us, like pretty much just against us. Like this seems like it should be pretty, pretty easy. And, and so we're seeing that, okay, maybe there's some cultural ideas coming into play. Maybe they're, they're thinking that the Pharisees are so culturally important, we need to hear from them. And they're letting that get in the way. But whatever it is, they're acting as curates to Jesus. They're saying, here's who can have access. Here's who we're gonna send away. And they're not doing it right. And Jesus sees the disciples sending off the children and he becomes indignant, incensed, angry. It's amazing to me how easily I, I just pass over these verses, right? I mean, because we usually read this passage with a different tone. Doesn't it, it sound probably more like, you know, for this next segment, I'd like the children to, to come to me. No, do not hinder them, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, it, it's like some gentle kind of a... You know, idea and yet that's not what's happening here. I mean Jesus is indignant. See my short socks? He's angry. He he's saying, I need to correct this, and he does it. I mean Jesus loves the children. Like I'm not trying to, to say that that's not true, I'm just saying this was for the gatekeepers. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. All right, we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit. This is the question that we were asking. Okay, so what does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? Now, how many of you look at this verse and and, and think childlike faith? You don't have to raise your hands, but I I know that's for me. Like, I'm kind of like, oh, childlike faith, you know, great. Mark ten thirteen through sixteen childlike faith. Let's move on. Um, the more that I look at it, I'm not really sure that that's what is going on here. Okay, I, I think actually it's just simpler than that. It's just more basic than that. It, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't have to get to that point. Um, this is where the context helps. Okay, so you remember how all three of the synoptic gospels pair this text with the interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Okay, there's a strong contrast going going on there now. Jesus says, you must receive the kingdom of God like a child, and then right after that, in the, next ch- in the next section, the rich young ruler comes and says, how must I gain eternal life, or how might I gain eternal life? And then they have that discussion, and then Jesus laments, man, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so you must receive the kingdom of God like this, and man, how hard it must be for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They're talking about the same thing, okay? It, it, it's almost like J- Jesus said, you must enter the kingdom like a child, and then the rich young ruler, you know, comes up right afterwards, and he didn't hear the question. He's like, hey, so how must I receive the kingdom? And, and it's pretty obvious from reading it that his idea is wrong. It, it's, it's the opposite of what Jesus is looking for. Um, Chad's talking about this section next week, so I'm not gonna really get into it. I, I just wanna point out the contrast in terms of what is the rich young ruler's case for acceptance into heaven. I, I think you could make uh, the argument that his case is saying, look, wealth, youth, and power, and I've obeyed the law. I have all of these things. Look at all this that I bring to the table. So tell me what I lack to get into heaven. It's kind of what he's saying. And then Jesus' response is, give up all those things that you have at the table and then come back with nothing give away your wealth, walk away from the throne room, spin your youth following me through the wilderness, give up your self-reliance. That's kind of the difference there. A baby doesn't really add anything. He's there because of whose he is. The rich young ruler says, look at what I have. Now, I think we can add some weight to this if we look at the parable from Luke. Okay, so Luke Uh, just before this passage, has the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and I think we have this text on the screen. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, and the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, Man, look at how much I bring to the table. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, do you see that? What does a a child bring? It's about the same as what that tax collector brought. Nothing. Nothing. He contributes nothing. And I think this is the characteristic that Jesus is talking about. It's an attitude that says, I can't rely on myself to gain eternal life. I can't rely on being able to do enough or accomplish enough or achieve enough. I must be totally dependent on God for that. This is the picture of grace in the simplest terms. Let's consider what Paul said in Romans. This is Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Man, no one is righteous, no, not one. Our righteousness, God says, is like filthy rags. It's not enough, it can never be enough. But in Romans 5, Paul points out that while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still helpless, while we were like babies, totally dependent. And, and I think we can sort of wrap this together in Romans chapter 8. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Man, thank you, God, for giving us helpless babies to show us how we really are and how we must be. We are heirs of God. We are sons of God because of Christ. As children, and his children, we're loved not because of what we, we are, but because of whose we are. I would say, you know, parents, you, you know, may you think about this at 4 a.m. as you're holding your baby who just needs you, that, man, what a gift we have in having the, the perfect example to us. And I know Rachel's rolling her eyes because I'm a deep sleeper. Verse 16, and he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. We kind of come full circle. You know, first they they came to receive the blessing, and then, you know, now at the end, he's taken them in his arms, he's blessed them, he's laying his hands on them. I just think, had those disciples been allowed to continue that rebuke, those children would have been denied the experience of being cradled in the arms of the creator of the universe, and they never would have heard that whisper from the son of God, God in the flesh, saying a blessing over them. You know, as I reflected on this earlier this week, I just wept. Like it just hit me. Sitting in Starbucks, feeling pretty self-conscious because I've got glassy eyes and it must have been dust or something um, in there. And, And I'm just thinking, what would an encounter with the living God be worth to me? Maybe those parents didn't know uh, that, that they were handing their baby to the son of God. Maybe, maybe they did know. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. But what I wouldn't give to hand my little child to Jesus and say, man, bless him. Wouldn't that be life-changing? I mean, that's, that's a powerful encounter, and it's so subtle. And I, I have to just ask the question, do we still curate access to the creator of the universe? I mean, we're the church, right? We're the body of Christ. Jesus told Peter toward the end of his ministry in Matthew 16, he said, I, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Clearly, there's a responsibility there. There's, there's some uh, important Idea that the the church is going to have the responsibility to act on the behalf of Jesus. Uh, He did give us the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us. It's our duty together as the church to act as curates. Okay? And until the king returns, we're the ones that are here. You know, Acts 1 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. We are the witnesses, we are the ones who are speaking for Christ. I mean, it seems natural that, you know, as a church, and, and I can say both a, a local church body and as the global church, as the bigger church, you know, we make decisions based on what we see in Scripture about how to prioritize what we do here, right? How to spend our time, how to budget our money, uh, how to use the resources that we have. I think that's, that's good and that's right. But I I also, I mean, I know that as a missionary, I'm I'm predisposed to kind of focus on this idea of missions. And so bear with me because I'm going to kind of take us there um, a little bit. I I just say consider there are between 2,200 and 2,500 unreached people groups in the world today. 2,200 to 2,500. Okay, that is out of less than 7,000 distinct languages that are spoken in the world today. 7,000 languages. 2,200 to 2,500 of them are are totally outside the reach of the gospel. They're living in distinct geographies, distinct languages, distinct cultures. They've never been exposed to the one who we claim is the only way to eternal life. I mean, just think about that. We believe that Jesus is the only way to God, and one-third of the world's languages are without a gospel witness. Because no one has taken the task of living among them cross-culturally in order to give them the opportunity to meet the Savior of the world. And, and they are helpless to save themselves. Now, I, it seems like a big number, right? It kind of, it is and it isn't. Um, I mean, 2,200 to 2,500 unreached people groups. Um, you know, there are 5,700 5, 5, churches in Texas in our denomination, that is, that's two to one. I mean, we could broaden it just a little bit and say the United States alone, there are 314,000 Protestant churches in the United States. That's 125 to one. What does that sound like to you? I mean, if the last recorded command of Jesus to the disciples was, go therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that that I've commanded you. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we can talk on a a satellite phone from anywhere in the world. We can fly on an airplane and be anywhere uh, quickly. We have all of this technological advance. We have all of the ability. We have PhDs in linguistics, you know, that can teach us. And yet, 2,200 to 2,500 people groups are still waiting for their first opportunity to hear the gospel. Some of us heard it 10 or 12 times before we responded to it. While some are just saying, man, I mean, they're maybe not saying anything, but I would say, man, how about one? How about one opportunity? I mean, if we're honest, we just say it's not really an issue of the means, right? We have the means. It's more just the will, you know, is it our desire? Is it our will to do it? reminded of Jesus saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray then for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field. Man, let's pray. Let's pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers. I'm going to kind of uh, wrap this up. I I just want to leave you with the story of Ekepita'a. All right, there's a picture. Sorry, I only have a small picture of him. Um, In October of 2008, this man named Ekepita'a hiked three days into the village of a neighboring tribal group in New Guinea. Okay, so he's on the island of New Guinea, three-day hike, and he walks into a Tao village that was home to some church planters who had only recently seen the first believers established among the Tao people, and the church there was blooming. Okay, so you've got this new church, this baby church, three-day walk, he comes in, and he brought the following message. He said, please tell Degapia'a, that's the missionary's tribal name, please tell Degapia'a that we want to hear this creator's talk. We want it so much that we are waiting for the time that you, along with the Tao Bible teachers, will bring it to us. And when the time comes that you are ready to tell us of the creator's message, just send us word and we will come. We will gather everyone from our area. We will all hike the trails all the way down to where you are, and we will live in your area for as long as two moons, two months. We will do this all so that we can hear the creator's message. If you would rather hike to our territory and tell us in our own houses, we will wait for you here. When you come, we will provide everything you need, including food so that you can live among us. We will provide for you so that you can stay and we can finally hear this big message. We want to hear this message and we even now wait for the day you can teach it to us. These are the words of Ekepita'a. This may be... An exceptional case. Maybe not everyone is like this. Okay, but this man was persistent. For over a year he came and he made the request, and every time he showed up in the village, the missionary had to tell him, man, we want to send somebody to teach you, but we don't have the manpower. We have no one to send. Finally, in 2011, the new church in Dowland that was just growing up, it was maturing they finally were at the point where they set aside some of their own to be trained to take the gospel. They studied literacy. They studied uh, the word of God. They began to, to get to that point where they were ready. And they sent word, of, word ahead. They made preparations for living away from their homes and gardens. They set off for the village. They arrived in the village and a huge crowd formed. They had heard that they were coming. They were ready for them. They were excited Uh, They asked around and they said, man, where is Ekepita'a? Because we're finally here. And they found out that he had passed away just two weeks before. He had heard about the creator's talk, but he never heard it himself. Friends, that's sobering. Now, I, I don't know. I mean, this week as I contemplated all of this, the phrase just it it wouldn't go away let the children come to me and do not hinder them and let us curate well let us do it well let's pray